Hello and welcome everyone to the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron White, and this is FF Plus, your outlet for weekly reviews that are simple, short, and spoiler-free. I've got a couple of new films to share with you today. Real quick, I just want to ask, if you're enjoying the show, please drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and maybe even some kind words in a review, or you can rate us on Spotify or whatever podcast app you listen to us on. It does help us out. Also, feel free to share the love, spread us on social media, tell your friends and family about us. We always love to welcome in new listeners and then chat with you guys on social media. So you can find all of our links for that in the show notes to every episode. I personally enjoy film conversations in any way I can have them. So reach out and let's talk. We like to get right into things here on this show, so we'll do that. The first film is One Fine Morning, coming from Sony Pictures Classics. It stars Leia Seydoux, Pascal Gregory, Melville Poupaud, Nicole Garcoa, and Camille Laban Martins. It is written and directed by Mia Hansen-Love, and it has cinematography by Denis Lenoir. Its runtime is 112 minutes. Its language is French, and it is rated R for some sexuality, nudity, and language. What's it about? With a father suffering from neurodegenerative disease, a young woman lives with her eight-year-old daughter. While struggling to secure a decent nursing home, she runs into an unavailable friend with whom she embarks on an affair. Now, I'll be honest, if I'd have read this synopsis, I might have skipped this movie, personally. I had a grandfather who was unfortunately suffering for many years from Alzheimer's, and I watched painfully close as he did exactly what that disease is called. His neurological degeneration was incredibly tough to watch, and ultimately he passed away from complications of the Alzheimer's, and it was very sad and very... Uh, hard for the family to have someone to take care of that really was not mentally there in the way that you are so used to. And for someone that is forgetful of things, and it's just a really complicated disease to have someone that you have to be responsible for. Couple that with this being kind of a parallel story where Sandra played by Zelaya do is navigating finding care for her father and how much of that she is feeling responsible to take care of herself versus the other half of the story where she is embarking on this affair. That's something that usually does not excite me in films. I struggle with movies that romanticize affairs and don't deal with the realistic fallout that can come from them. And this is exactly what happens here in this movie, and that's something that largely sunk it for me, despite a relatively pleasant experience with it for some of its runtime. So I think that Mia Hansen-Love has a lot of potential here in this film, and I really appreciate the way that she makes this movie. It is very naturalistic. The film is kind of uh, soft 
in the way it's shot. It's not super melodramatic. So it is definitely nothing but drama, but there's no musical score, almost no musical score. And instead, it's just really carried by the wonderfully emotionally restrained performance from Seydu and an interesting idea of how this single mother and also a widow has to deal with her ailing elderly father and find a balance of living her own life, moving on after the death of her significant other. How is she going to find the way to make sure her parent is taken care of, but also not lose herself in the process and not put her own child to the side. It's a complicated situation that she is placed in. And I think that her performance is very, very good and really does capture that difficulty well. You can feel it. I thought that the relationship between she and the love interest, Clement, who comes back into her life, who is a cosmochemist. That's a person who goes to remote places on Earth to collect interstellar dust. That's the way he explains his profession. Fascinating job. She's a translator. It's a, it's a weird pairing. But once the two friends reunite, you can tell pretty quickly that it's going to eventually fall into this romantic territory. And I liked the way that it was dramatized, it's not overly sexualized. They do have sex at one point. There is a few scenes of nudity, but their kissing is almost awkward in, in a very normal way. It doesn't feel like they're trying to create passionate love scenes for the camera. It just feels like they're two people who genuinely are somewhat overcome by this feeling of attraction to each other in a way that I think many of us have experienced. And it really does, it gets at that feeling of longing for a person. What ends up happening is, of course, Clement being married and with a child himself becomes unavailable off and on, off and on. And that's where the movie really does start to lose me is because it does capture the jealousy and complications of an affair, and it shows us how someone can be really hurt by wanting to be with this person who they feel amazing with at times, but then that person is far away and only emotionally available to them via sweet text messages. And the reality is that they're choosing someone else over you. And watching this take place over and over and over in Sandra's life was just not a pleasant experience for me. I didn't think that it was particularly interesting or new. It's unfair and awful behavior that she is dealing with. And it made me really dislike the significant other. And the problem with the film, without giving away exactly what happens, is that I felt like it ends up in a place that wants me to be happy for Sandra and Clement together. And that is an issue because the film never deals with the fallout of his own relationship, of his marriage, and of his child. 
We see his child one time at the very beginning of the film, and then he's just a footnote. He just gets brought up every once in a while. And that's a problem to me. It's a problem to me when we romanticize this woman who brings someone else's husband and father into her life and lets him become someone that her own child is familiar with in her home. And it definitely affects the choices that she makes when dealing with taking care of her father and how she manages those obligations, like I mentioned earlier, and how she struggles with suffering <laughs> by seeing her own father suffer. And so I think that the central idea and the very internalized performance by Seydu are strong, but it did not come together in a cohesive way. Instead, it left me sort of depressed. And for a movie that is just okay and a little bit too long and meandering, it unfortunately just never rises to any heights that make it something special or unique. I don't understand how this won an award at Cannes. I feel like it's a very average film at best. But if you enjoy dramatic storytelling, perhaps you'll like this. I think it is one of Lea Seydoux's best performances by far. So maybe you want to show up for that. I wouldn't fault you at all. You could do worse, but it's certainly nothing that I think is worthy of any sort of awards attention whatsoever outside of maybe her performance, but it's hard. It's it's really hard to, when you are reviewing a film and you're trying to evaluate a director's choices in story that directly conflict with your own worldview. And so again, while they're presented well, I think that the tone of the movie trying to make me feel better about the relationship than I wanted to is really the issue here overall. Anyway, One Fine Morning will be available in theaters via limited release on March the 3rd. So you can look for it then or keep an eye out for a more wide release coming down the road should that occur. Next up is Operation Fortune Ruse de Guerre from Lionsgate. It stars Jason Statham, Aubrey Plaza, Josh Hartnett, Carrie Ells, Bugsy Malone, and Hugh Grant. It is directed by Guy Ritchie, written by Ivan Atkinson, Marn Davies, and Guy Ritchie. Cinematography is by Alan Stewart, and music is by Christopher Benstead. It runs 114 minutes and is rated R for language and violence. What's it about? Special Agent Orson Fortune and his team of operatives recruit one of Hollywood's biggest movie stars to help them on an undercover mission when the sale of a deadly new weapons technology threatens to disrupt the world order. This is a disappointingly average movie, which is frankly unacceptable for a director like Guy Ritchie, who we know can and expect to bring a sense of style and flair. It never shows up, and that was a real frustrating thing because when you're coming to this, you think Guy Ritchie, spy film, Man from Uncle. Wow, that was a really standout, stylistic, fun, comedy, adventure, action movie. I didn't get that from Operation Fortune. This felt 
very generic in practically every way, right down to this plot of, oh, someone stole a deadly technology called the handle. <laughs> and we don't really know exactly what it is, but there's this billionaire arms dealer and we need to go hunt it down because it's dangerous. Jason Statham plays the titular super spy, Fortune, and I don't understand how you make a movie about a character putting his name in the title like that or referencing his name in the title like that and then do nothing to have him stand out whatsoever. This is not a James Bond. This is not an Ethan Hunt. You will forget his name instantaneously. Maybe that's why it's in the title, so that perhaps you don't. He's just Jathan Statham in an action movie, <laughs> and really, that's it. Now, I like Jason Statham in action movies, and there are a couple of decent hand-to-hand -hand combat sequences here, but it's absolutely nothing that can stand up with his best by any means, and he has no unique qualities whatsoever that would make him interesting in the realm of other super spies. And so that was just another frustrating element. There was nothing in this that had it above and beyond what we see in this genre. And supporting cast, right off the top, we get Carrie Ells as this very strange handler who hires Fortune to go on this job because the British government has hired him to go and recapture this device. Statham has this nemesis who is basically hardly ever on screen, and that nemesis of his is also a contractor privately who is being sent after this, and so there's sort of a race to see who can get it first, but the government is perpetuating this race because they're just trying to form competition to make it sure it happens and happens as soon as possible. It's not interesting. The backstory between them is never fleshed out in a way that makes it deeper dramatically. There is a crew up at the early stages of this film where Agent Fortune is paired up with Bugsy Malone's character and Aubrey Plaza's character. Uh, Aubrey Plaza plays a hacker and someone who is terrible at it. I, I think the the editing of the film never makes her believable in this role to me as some sort of a special agent. She's shown in front of computer screens, and it's very generic in the way that like you see her and her hands are just like sitting on a keyboard and there's text on the keyboard and she's talking all high-minded as if she like knows what she's doing. The problem is she's also just playing Aubrey Plaza, so she's sarcastic and witty and pretty sexy I'll be honest like that's her play in this film but she doesn't do anything again that stands out like you won't remember anything about this movie at all not the characters not the plot not the action there has to be something like that to latch onto, and unfortunately Richie completely misses here it takes about an hour before any sort of propulsive action happens and then there is a decent section of maybe 20 minutes where they're on location filming in Turkey. I absolutely love that. And there are some overhead shots of a chase scene throughout the city streets that it's a lot of fun. 
There's some gunfights that actually have a couple of brief shots in them that flash that typical Richie flair. But the majority of the film, it's just not there. The two characters that did stand out a little bit to me are Hugh Grant playing the billionaire arms dealer who is in charge of trying to sell this new technology that has been stolen and move it along. And then there is Josh Hartnett. Both of these actors are reuniting with Richie after recently playing roles in films of his. And I liked both of them here. They are eccentric enough that I remembered them. Hartnett plays the movie star who has been brought in to play a role because Hugh Grant's character adores him as an actor. And the way that they have scenes together and interact is definitely the most enjoyable thing. And there's a little bit of chemistry there that you can really feel. Everything else, again, just felt like a lack of the theatrics that I expect in a Ritchie film and made me long for what this director can be at his best. I forgot everything about this movie an hour after it ended. And that is extremely sad because I thought that Guy Ritchie was making a comeback after The Gentleman and Wrath of Man, two films that I really enjoyed. I had high hopes for this, you know, based on my love of The Man from Uncle as well. I thought he knows what he's doing. He can nail this sort of thing, but this is not it. And it was very obvious to me why this film has had many delays in its release, why it kind of stealth came out overseas in certain areas just briefly. And it's really being rolled out without a lot of fanfare. And that's because the studio knows exactly what I'm telling you, that it's just not very good. And that's unfortunate. Operation Fortune, I refuse to say the subtitle anymore because it really shouldn't even be in the title. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's mentioned like once in the movie, by the way, that ruse de guerre section or whatever. It's just they're making it overly complicated for no reason. Anyway, Operation Fortune will be in theaters on March the 3rd, and I think it's completely skippable in every way. Last but not least, I just want to share a couple of quick thoughts on some new upcoming home video releases, the first of which is Training Day, coming from WB. This is, of course, Antoine Fuqua's 2001 thriller about a young narcotics officer who is being paired with a rogue detective. It stars Ethan Hawke and Denzel Washington, and it is my personal favorite performance of Denzel Washington's amongst a career of greatness, but this is the most memorable to me. This is absolutely the best the film has ever looked, as you could imagine. Uh, it's gorgeous in 4K. The colors look very natural, and they feel extremely lifelike, and I didn't see any sort of artifacts on the screen or issues with the scaling up. Um, the color and the black saturation are both very strong. The audio rocks. The gunshots sound louder. You can feel them. There's a rumble to the overall music in the film, the score, the bass. It really hits hard with this 
Dolby Atmos track, and I think it is by far better than the old Blu-ray that I had. So I really enjoyed the sound from an extra standpoint. Unfortunately, I don't think that the film holds up well here because it's just the same stuff that was already on it going all the way back to the DVD release. Frankly, this is why I review home video films or preview them, whatever you want to call this. This is why I share with you about them is because I want new visuals, but I also want new special features. Like that's what I come to home video for the most. I'd already heard the commentary track. I re-listened to some of it because it does have some strengths. There are some sections in here where Fuqua talks about the cops that talked to him about corruption and how he used them to kind of formulate his story. He talks about the, what's authentic and what's not. He talks about the actors in the film and you know, all the way down to some extras and how he was very specific about who he was casting in this movie. But unfortunately, I don't think that he does a great job of being engaging constantly. The best commentary tracks are ones where someone is talking pretty much nonstop and it's a tough task. I don't think that all directors are good at it. And Fuqua in this one does not show himself to be. So it's fine, but it's by no means do I think a must listen like I would some other commentary tracks. There's just not enough there. And the other extras are pretty bare bones. There's, there's nothing really special here. A couple old music videos. That's of the time. That's what they used to do in the 2000s. So is it a good 4K upgrade if you already own the film? Yeah, it's probably still worth it, especially if you catch it on a sale. If you haven't ever bought the film before, you, you absolutely want to buy it uh, this way for the first time. Uh, so I do recommend it for sure. It's just a phenomenal movie regardless. And so owning it in the best visual and auditory way possible is a no-brainer. Next is Kubo and the Two Strings. I got this new Shout Factory double pack of Kubo and the Two Strings and the Box Trolls both of which are being released in 4K and also have incredible steelbook versions. That's what I have, and they are so, so gorgeous. What I'm going to say here across the board, <laughs> these 4K remakes or remasters, I should say, of the Leica films, there are a couple that came, I don't know, late last year. Paranorman was one of them. I'm trying to remember. I think Coraline might have gotten one of these as well. So it seems like they're going through the whole catalog all of them look amazing in 4K. I think that 4K in general really brings out stop motion animation in a way that some other animation doesn't necessarily benefit from it, like CGI, but the detail that you get when you upscale this to 4K was a big boost. And I think they both look absolutely wonderful, much like with training day they both come with dolby atmos tracks that are gorgeous musically stands out more in kubo than it does in the box trolls in my opinion simply because kubo is a musical film more so than the box trolls is when it comes to special features these two are packed and it's great 
They both have an auto commentary track that is really insightful. I believe this is Travis Knight's first ever commentary track is what he said on the Kubo one. And both of these have the directors, the filmmakers talking about how hard it is to do stop motion animation and how amazing the process is of what film studios like Leica do to create the aesthetics and these fantastical worlds that are formulated by these puppets and the, the work that they do to make these animated. It's just phenomenal. I really enjoy learning about stop motion animation any chance I get. And so both of these commentary tracks, I highly recommend. Both discs also come with a little featurette that call, it starts with, it's called Inside Leica. And then it talks about individually the challenges in putting together the films. They are interviews with many folks on the creative team, and they talk about just how ambitious their storytelling ideals are and how tough it is to come up with different character designs and really make them look the way that they want to and work. I just, again, cannot get enough of this stuff. So if you're like me and you're an animation junkie, especially a stop motion fan, you're going to love these 15-minute featurettes. They're just fantastic. And then there's a lot more. There's a whole bunch of different smaller featurettes on both discs. There are some storytelling uh, featurettes that talk about creatures and like one of the, or one of them in Kubo talks about mythological monsters and the Japanese inspiration for the film. One of them in the Box Trolls talks about the language that the Box Trolls speak. I just really, really enjoyed digging into the special features for both of these so much. All of these Leica 4K upgrades are must-haves if you're a fan of their films and the studios. They're among my favorites that I've gotten in years, frankly. And they will probably be among the ones that I rewatch the most. They look so phenomenal. They sound so phenomenal. And all the extra stuff is just completely engaging and fascinating. Welcome information to learn. So big, big, big thumbs up for both of the Leica 4K releases for Kubo and the Two Strings and the Box Trolls. Even though I think the Box Trolls is just a fine movie, the disc itself can't be beat. And Kubo and the Two Strings, frankly, is a masterpiece. Like Training Day, both of these two discs will also be available on February the 28th, so you can go get them right now. Well, that's it for this week on FF+. Plus. Hopefully, I've given you some information that will help in your decision-making. If you do see any of the films I discuss, let me know your thoughts on social media. Seek me out and let's chat. Also, be sure to check out the other great shows that partner with us on Now Playing Network at nowplayingnetwork.net. I'll be back soon. But until then, keep watching and keep feeling film.